Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds and a winter advisory warning for the, for the weekend. So although it's spring, it's still winter. Be careful out there. We are really delighted to have um, David Nuremberg give today's Medical Grand Rounds. When I think about David, he is the consummate quadruple threat, maybe quintuplet threat, but he does everything and he does it all absolutely perfectly. He's an amazing teacher, clinician, researcher, and administrator, friend, citizen, and all kinds of wonderful accolades. And he said, keep this introduction relatively short, so maybe I should end there, but I do think that people have curiosity. So David was born in New York City. He went to Harvard College. He did a small stint at Oxford. He came back and went to Harvard Medical School. He did his internship and residency at the BI in Boston. He then decided to go to the West Coast, where he did his clinical pharmacology, clinical and research training at UCSF. He then, as was the want in that day, became the chief medical resident at Stanford. And so those of you who are older in the audience realize that that is the way it used to happen. And then Dartmouth was amazingly lucky to be able to recruit David in 1981 out of his chief residency to come and start the clinical pharmacology division here. And he's been the section chief and leader of that enterprise uh, since that time. He is currently the Edward Crum Professor of Medicine and Pharmacology Toxicology, rising up obviously through the ranks from the time when he was an instructor out at UCSF through now being a, uh, an honorific uh, named professor. He's also the Senior Associate Dean for um, Medical Education and has had an imprint on the curriculum at what was Dartmouth Medical School, now Geisel Medical School, um, for decades. And if you just think about the number of students who've come through there and the number of lives that David has touched, despite <laughs> writing prolifically, He's touched so many more individuals as they have come through their educational process here uh, since the early 1980s. And for that, David, we're amazingly grateful. You have been beneath the soul of the medical school, and I truly believe that. You have been an advising dean to countless deans. You have been an advisor to countless numbers of students and trainees and helped to shape the lives of numerous scores of uh, physicians who are now, I'm sure, all the better for having met with you. I think at this point I could go on and on. David's won amazing awards from the AAMC AOA as a teacher. He's got one of the most prolific teaching awards pieces of his CV that you could see. And I'm sure we're all going to be treated now to understanding more about Aerosmith because I think it's, oh, that's not the heavy metal that you're talking about? Okay, he's gonna to talk to us today about heavy metal. David, come talk to us. Thanks, that's really gracious. Well, thanks very much for that uh, gracious introduction, Rich. I, I can see my two parents, if, if they had been here, they both passed on, but my mom would have said, yes, that's my son, and my dad would have said, who was he talking about? <laughs> uh, but thank you for that. Um, I, I do want to share with you um, some reflections I've had about heavy metals. I've been here 37 years, and I've been impressed how tricky these are 
but how frequent they get our patients into trouble. And I'd like to try today to, to present four patient vignettes. I, I grew up in the classical tradition of grand rounds where you would present a case and then discuss it. I, I'm aiming for four, briefly. Um, and what they have in common is they all involve a heavy metal that poisoned a patient, and it was totally accidental. It's not your usual kind of patients that Lionel and I see where someone has been very depressed and has taken a deliberate overdose. These were sneaky, and they all presented initially to primary care physicians, internists, and family medicine doctors. And so I'm trying to slant it in that way, and especially to the residents, that keep your eyes open because these patients will come in, and they don't, they're not labeled as a heavy metal patient. They're very tricky. Uh, but I do have to say, getting back to what Rich was saying, my first contact with heavy metals was, you know, graduating from high school in 67 and going to college in 68. Uh, you know, I knew what heavy metals were. I had no idea I would be dealing with them 60 years later. Um, and Dr. Lewis was in a similar situation. He grew up in Wales, as most of you know. He went to high school just a couple of years later than I did. And talking to him, I was fascinated to find that he was into heavy metals, too. Um, I don't expect any of you know what this is, but it's a heavy metal concert. And what makes it interesting is it was in Cardiff, Wales, around 1970, right about when Lionel would have been a senior in his equivalent of high school. But what I didn't know, but this is the power of the web uh, today and the Internet, is I... I actually found a copy, and I don't know if you can see that, but, you know, the hair has changed, but at, at first I wasn't sure that was Dr. Lewis, but then I, I actually found an earlier picture of him before he had airbrushed his uh, guitar, and I don't know if you can see it right down here. Um, that's his little Welsh flag that he put on his guitar. <laughs> so we have both been interested in heavy metals, and the wonderful thing about having a, col uh, a colleague like Lionel is these cases are tricky, and we love to present them to each other and get the other's best idea. So, Lionel, thank you for loyally doing that for so many years. Here, here are my learning objectives for today. Um, I'd like to describe the different clinical presentations of these four patients. So you get to see how varied they are with different metals. I want to briefly explain how chelators work. That's pretty simple, but what's more subtle is when you use them and when you refrain from using them, because they all carry some toxicity. And then describe how patients can develop heavy metal toxicity totally accidentally. And again, a metal is just a hard element, usually shiny, sometimes malleable, and sometimes fusible, and often but not always a good conductor of electricity. Uh, and then heavy metal, you can see here, has two definitions. I'm going to focus on the medical definition, a metal of relatively high density, there's no specificity there, or of high relative atomic weight. And I wanted to start with our, most, our third most common metal on the surface of the planet, um, and this one we deal with in medicine all the time, calcium. And you can see here, calcium actually is a metal. And it's actually yellowish gray in color, but it becomes all gray because it rapidly oxidizes. But we don't think of it as a metal because we never use it in the elemental state. We're very familiar with calcium carbonate. That's Tums. Those are stalactites and stalagmites.
calcium gluconate, so we see the salt of calcium. Well, it doesn't look like a metal at all, but actually it is one of the lighter metals. And I'm going to be showing you some slides that all look like this. Calcium 20Ca is the symbol for calcium, and that is its atomic number. And as you can see, the lower atomic numbers here, and as you move down periodic table, they get heavier and heavier, and often more dense as well. Here is a list of some of the heavy metals that have poisoned patients that Lionel and I have taken care of. And you can see they're, they're just all over the place. Titanium, often used in orthopedic devices, as are chromium and cobalt and nickel. Last week I saw a woman who was uh, slightly poisoned with copper from her plumbing system. Uh, we've seen a number of arsenic poison patients. Molybdenum is considered a benign, uh, relatively inert heavy metal, but it can cause toxicity in orthopedic devices. Um, cadmium, gadolinium as a contrast agent. I put silver and gold here, not because we commonly see those uh, in toxic patients, but just to show you they are included in the heavy metals, uh, but not usually. Gold doesn't rarely presents with toxicity, although um, you can see patients that have been poisoned with silver, although it's unusual. And then finally, the ones with the heavier numbers, mercury uh, and lead. So here's my first patient, a 59-year-old woman with severe chronic pain in her right hip due to longstanding osteoarthritis. And in March of 2009, because her hip was so uncomfortable, she underwent a routine and uneventful right total hip replacement and had the other hip replaced about a year later, and both surgeries went well. But about a year and a half after the first hip had been replaced, by the fall of 2010, that right hip was aching more a year and a half after surgery than it had been hurting before she had the initial surgery. Should she be reoperated on, nobody wants to go through a total hip surgery and then have to go through a second surgery to remove the device uh, and to replace it, because that's really uncomfortable. Um, but they looked at her and found that uh, the heavy metal levels in her blood were quite elevated. And they actually did a joint tap in her because she had some back issues and they wanted to be sure this wasn't a radiculopathy but this was actually localized pain within the hip joint, and tapped it. And the, the synovial fluid that came out of the large bursa that was right around her hip joint looked like dirty motor oil after 6,000 miles when you change it. It was just black and, and yucky and had astronomically elevated levels of the heavy metals involved here. She had to undergo a similar type of revision surgery uh, the next year, Fortunately, both revision surgeries went well. The devices that were put on were different and didn't develop this problem, fortunately. So I'd like you to just think for 15 seconds, what heavy metals should we be worried about in this patient? And I've put up the most common heavy metals that are used in prosthetic joint devices that are implanted. And just think about that. And does anybody feel strongly that they have the right answer to this? Because all of those metals, when ground into dust and put into tissue cultures with chondrocytes 
or other cells stimulate the production of inflammatory cytokines. So they can all do it. But does anybody remember these patients? There was a wave of them from 2010 to 2015. Yeah. It was metal on metal. It was a metal on metal prosthesis that ground into dust, and that dust stimulated this reaction. But do you remember what the metals were? What, what blood tests would you send off? Because you're absolutely right. Yeah, chromium and cobalt. And here, I just want to show you how astronomical these levels were. And here's a chronology. In 2009, the right hip went in. The left hip went in. She was fine. About a year later, it started to hurt again. Right before the revision surgery, the chromium level was 34 times the upper limit of normal. The cobalt level was 17 times the upper limit of normal. And you order those by specific blood tests in specific trace metal tubes. If you don't use the right tube, it's contaminated and you can't run it. Look at her joint aspiration, 10,000-fold the upper limit of normal of blood. That black motor oil was loaded with dust from these grinding metal on metal. And here's 1,600 times. The right hip was taken out. The levels came down significantly. The left hip was taken out and replaced. And um, three months later, they weren't down to normal, but they were close. And then a year after that, they were basically normal. 10,000 times higher in the joint fluid. Who were the heavy metal suspects? Cobalt, which actually is necessary for life, and you may know that vitamin 12 is also called cyanocobalamin. We need a little bit of it, but if you lived in Canada in 1966, where they added cobalt to make the foam of the beer just the right consistently, and if, not that any Canadians would ever do this, but if they happen to drink a lot of beer, especially around hockey or curling events, um, they got toxic, and the toxicity at very high cobalt levels, which they actually called cobaltism, was a severe neuropathy, hypothyroidism. That's there for Rich Comey and friends, and pericardial exudates. So it can be toxic, but it rarely is, because you need such astronomically high levels. Um, and chromium, it's the same story. Um, although the, the wrinkle with chromium is um, it's fairly benign, unless you get the dust in your joint, except for chromium in a valence state of plus six, which is considered highly carcinogenic. So with these heavy metals, we always have to think about, is it the elemental metal, or is it the ionic form, like chromium plus six, or is it complexed organically with a carbon in an organic molecule, which sometimes makes them even more toxic? And here's exactly the device that, that you were talking about. Um, the usual device is an is a acetabular cap and ephemeral ball separated not by synovial fluid so much now, but by a polyethylene liner. And that's what usually wears out after 10 to 15 years. But these companies, now that they had these really hard heavy metals made out of cobalt and chromium, figured they could machine them so well that just with a little synovial fluid, they would last forever. And you wouldn't have to replace the polyethylene. What they didn't realize is when they went up in diameter, the grinding forces at the edge of the prosthesis were so great, 
that it ground itself into dust, which then went into the hip joint space and caused all these problems. And that's just showing you the metal on metal, what it's called MOM, prosthesis. And the problem was this, this dust, whether it's the physical property or the chemical property, sets off this cytokine cascade in the joint, causing localized necrosis, not only of the synovium, but of the nerves, the ligaments, the bone, and the muscle right around it. So if that starts to happen, and you don't take the hip joint out very quickly, you may be in a situation where you can't put a replacement in. And I think my next picture right down here shows one of these metal-on-metal -metal large head prostheses. This, you can see the femur has totally eroded because they had to put in an extra long prosthesis because there's no bone above here. That femur be femur became loose. They have more screws in it. You can see a very large pocket of fluid here, and that's the metal dust. Can you see that white there? And you can see there were other soft tissue problems up here. So when you notice this in a patient, and I'm still seeing some of these patients actually, even five or six years after they had their total joints done, it's a very tough decision for the doctor and the patient to make. Well, the patient's course, uh, she did have these replacements, and ultimately she did well, and ultimately the chromium and the cobalt came down back into the normal range. But these patients are left wondering whether there is any long-term toxicity from the heavy metals, especially the chromium, which the body has some ability to turn into chromium plus three and chromium plus six, and we won't know for 20 or 30 years after this all happened in 2010 um, whether there is an increased risk of carcinogenicity or not. So some home points that I just wanted to think about with you. Many implantable orthopedic devices are advertised and are usually made of inert heavy metals and alloys, but most of them are not totally inert. The particles, the dust, or the ions can be released locally. They can induce a localized inflammatory response, progressing to the point of necrosis of local tissues. They may require reoperation in many patients, and we still don't know the long-term systemic symptoms. There is very little published experience on chelation. And so one of the principles here is the most important thing when you find a patient who's been poisoned with heavy metals is remove the exposure. If it's a little kid playing in a rundown apartment with lots of white paint from before 1978 falling off with dust in the corners and they are lead toxic, they will not get better until you remove them from that lead toxic site, or in this case, the chromium and cobalt toxic joint. Sometimes chelation is added to that, but remember that chelation, um, patients are sometimes allergic to the chelation. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Um, chelation is taking this toxic metal and dragging it through the kidney and kidney concentrations rise astronomically and you can damage the kidney. And remember, a chelator is not only gonna to try to remove the cobalt and chromium, it's also gonna drag out all of your other um, essential metals. And so chelation is never a benign thing. I will, I will give you a couple of examples where we used chelation, but it's not automatic. And you always wanna think about whether the benefits will outweigh the risks. So that's the first patient, and I thought I'd take a breath here and see if there's one or two follow-up questions. So, so were all people 
Were all these prostheses removed? No, and that, that is such a good question. If the patient's pain came back as bad as it was, of course you would remove it. Because the whole point of doing the initial surgery is so they could walk better again. The tricky thing is what if a patient comes in with extremely high metal levels, but they have no symptoms, and they say, my, my hip feels okay. And I've had that discussion with a number of patients, and there's not a right answer. Some patients say, I don't want a cobalt or chromium level that's, you know, 40 times the upper limit of normal in me for the next 30 years. Let's get it out now. And other patients say, that hip surgery was really tough. I'm not going to go in there unless it starts hurting. Your concern is by the time you go in in that situation, there may be enough necrosis that you can't replace it. So that's, those are the issues you wrestle with. And I, I've, I've had that discussion with many patients in conjunction with the referring orthopedist, because it's not an easy decision. Okay, here's a second patient, totally different patient. Um, uh, and, and this is a patient that I saw just last fall. Um, and he comes in with new headaches, nausea, and tremor in a 62-year-old man who had just started working at a new construction site. And he referred himself to our toxicology service last August for evaluation of this new headaches, nausea, weight loss, mild tremor, and a little bit of sort of shaking of his uh, head and neck. And the tremor was very faint, but you could see it. And a dysesthesia, a pins and needles sensation in his hands and feet. And he said he had no idea what was doing this, but beginning uh, in November of 2016, um, he and other uh, construction, uh, yeah, in 2016, he and other uh, construction workers were hired to demolish a very, very old steam boiler as they were decommissioning an old power plant. And they were cutting the steam boiler into parts with acetylene torches. But the boiler, he later found out after he started working there, contained a heavy metal that had been designed into the boiler to give it higher heat retention. That if you fire it up to a certain temperature, these heavy metals are very dense and, and they retain their heat longer so you didn't have to keep burning as much oil. During their work, they saw this heavy metal that had been incorporated into the boiler all over the construction site, including on the floor of their break room. And when they cut into the large boiler, they could see the heavy metal in the boiler. They had been given masks, but never instructed how to use them. Many of them didn't use them because it was so hot and they were using the torches and they had not been fitted properly. And they were also given protective Tyvek suits, which again made them very sweaty and so some of them didn't wear them. They were not aware that there was any heavy metal problem until one of the coworkers also started to get sick and ordered online a, a, a do-it-yourself uh, urine test kit for this heavy metal, just like you can buy a do-it-yourself pregnancy test. And it came back very high for this metal and showed um, above normal levels of the heavy metal in his urine. So with this history, again, presenting to a primary care physician, what would you worry about? Just take a minute to think about that. And um, this is just showing you an example of the type of boiler, which you can see up here. You can see this huge 12-foot in diameter thing. And here's the acetylene, very high temperature torch cutting through that and potentially turning whatever that heavy metal is into a gas, which is much easier to inhale. 
Does anybody have a guess? Uh, yes, Kathy? I'm guessing copper. Uh, that is a really good guess. It turned out not to be true, but that was one of my first guesses as well. Yeah. Mercury. Uh, mercury. So it did turn out to be mercury. Um, but let me ask you, what form of mercury? <laughs> because they all differ. Uh, are we talking organic mercury? Mercury and it's plus one valence, it's plus two valence, or it's elemental? What do you think? It turns out it was elemental mercury. It was um, this stuff that used to be in thermometers and sphygmomanometers. And all over the construction site were these large puddles of elemental mercury that had dripped out of the boiler in the break room. As they cut into the boiler, it spilled onto the floor. And liquid mercury, it's one of the only metals that's liquid at room temperature, is volatile. It turns into mercury vapor. And especially when you provoke it and irritate it with an acetylene torch, it really vaporizes. This is the most common form of, of mercury, although I've treated patients who almost died uh, from uh, mercuric chloride, so I respect that, and, and also from organic mercury. But this is the most common. And I think I have more information uh, about him. Uh, he began working at the site in uh, November, but actually getting into the danger area in December and worked there for six months with that limited protection. And finally, another worker that I mentioned found uh, mercury uh, in his urine. And there was a pause for a couple of days at the work site. And they put a containment tent around it and then sent people back in, inside and outside. And he had a routine check just a week later. And you can see that his urine mercury concentration was way above the normal limit. And his blood level was, what is that, about five to six times above the normal limit. And mercury is quite neurotoxic. So even though it's only five times above, it was probable that those neurological symptoms that had developed only since this work were probably related. He was assigned to work outside the containment tent. And they, they hired a toxicology expert from California who met with all of these people who were now worried. Oh, yeah, that first guy had really a lot of mercury in his urine. And now we've all been tested. And we have a lot of mercury in the urine. And his diagnosis and his treatment was, you're all eating too much fish. <laughs> and you know, swordfish and tuna, the large game fish, do have a lot of organic mercury in them. And sometimes I see patients, especially women, who eat tuna fish five times a week who come in with mercury levels that are elevated, not usually this high. Um, and I tell them, don't eat as much. But he says, I don't think that's true for me because I hate fish. <laughs> so that was the quality of the advice that this paid consultant was giving. He just told everybody, it's not your work on the site. Keep doing it. Don't eat as much fish. Um, on the next month, he, uh, his level in his uh, urine was even higher. Um, and, and about that time, he called and I said, um, I'm going on vacation shortly, but you definitely need to stop working. The first thing is to remove yourself from the exposure. Um, I'm going to contact OSHA. I can see you as soon as I get back or as soon as you can make it up here. Um, later in July, you can see that his urinary level, even away for a couple of weeks from the exposure, was very high. 
but the blood level had fallen. Um, then I saw him at DHMC, and follow up a month after that, you can see the urine level is still high, but getting down closer to the OSHA limit for occupational exposure, and the blood level um, came down, and his symptoms were starting to substantially improve. So I thought about chelating him, but by the time I saw him, his levels were falling nicely with his own natural urinary excretion, which we could measure, and his symptoms were getting better, and chelation has the potential for side effects, so we decided not to chelate him. And I think I saw a total of four or five patients from this same work site with the same problem. So what else would you do if you were just sitting there running your clinical pharmacology and toxicology clinic, and the stream of five people were coming up from Portsmouth where the work was being done, uh, what else would you do in terms of a public health point of view? Any suggestions? I, I didn't know what to do, so I called up the New Hampshire branch of OSHA because I figured this was an occupational safety and health. And they actually had not spent much time at that site at all until I called them. And I said, you really need to get in there and check this out, because what they're describing is big puddles of elemental mercury all over the work site, masks that are not fitted properly, and Tyvek suits that are not working. And to their credit, um, they really did engage. And I, I, I want to specifically give them credit. In fact, I, I wanted to give them a whole slide uh, after I saw those patients and I called them, they were very helpful. And later, uh, I had called them in about August, and on December, they had done their investigation, put warning notices up in the site. And I didn't know this, but I'll explain it to you. They divide violations of OSHA rules into serious. Each one gets a small fine. It's always the same. It didn't provide adequate respirators. The ones you gave wouldn't have worked anyway. You never fit them. You didn't have them working in a negative pressure environment. You failed to reevaluate the respirator. Um, you gave them a break room that had puddles of mercury right in the room on the floor where they were eating and breathing. Um, you didn't give them other protective equipment. And then there were willful violations, things that you deliberately did, even though you knew it was wrong. And those fines are 10 times higher. And the total was $330,000 in fine. Now, there's a couple of things interesting about this before I leave it. This is um, a construction, um, sort of a weekly news magazine. That It's amazing what you find online, but here is the summary. OSHA finds a Connecticut contractor for $330,000. And what really um, entertained me about this is the person who owns the company that was dodging all responsibility and see if this name is familiar, Manafort Brothers. Yeah, so I guess it runs in the family or something. <laughs> Take home points from this case. Occupational work sites are another way. You can be accidentally exposed. They didn't go in there hoping to become mercury toxic. They were told you would be protected. And even when I told these patients you should not work in that work site, until your levels come down to normal, what they were being told by their employer, Manafort Brothers, is if you don't show up for work, we will fire you, which is also illegal. Um, remember that mercury is the only heavy metal in liquid form, and it is volatile. 
it will vaporize and, and the main source of exposure is inhalation. Also, health consultants hired by companies may be on the company payroll and may give you such useful advices. Don't eat as much fish, but keep working at the site. End of investigation. Your local OSHA office can be very helpful, and I want to thank them again publicly. But I worry about this. I worry about the effect of Trump-appointed leaders, budget cuts on staffing, and especially I was looking up uh, the current head of the EPA who's in trouble, uh, in trouble for his exaggerated expense accounts, but he also was appointed to lead the EPA when, when he was working in Oklahoma. He was suing the EPA multiple times because they were too aggressive. And this was ironic. Sue Collins of Maine was the sole Republican to, to vote against his nomination. And she said, I have significant concerns that he has actively opposed and sued the EPA on numerous issues. And what she worried about was his work to remove restrictions on airborne mercury emissions, starting in the Midwest and then traveling over to New Hampshire and Maine. And I figure, if it were up to Pruitt, he wouldn't care that Manafort brothers were poisoning people on the work site. So this actually spills into politics as well as being medically really interesting. So what have we talked about so far? We're about halfway through. I, I talked about this 59-year-old woman who had a total hip replacement and was accidentally exposed without her knowledge to very, very high and toxic levels of cobalt and chromium that caused localized tissue necrosis. I categorize that as severe. And I think you'd agree, not that she was feeling horribly sick, but if you're forced to undergo four total hip surgeries in three years, I call that severe disease. And this gentleman, the 62-year-old from the construction, totally different metal, vapor, not dust, at a job site, not from a device, headache, tremors, and numbness, mild to moderate. Here we had to remove the exposure from the device, here, we had to remove the worker from the exposure. But we didn't chelate either one. OK, are you up for a third case? A 48-year-old woman with acute onset of ataxia and slurred speech came on out of the blue all of a sudden. She noticed five days before presenting to her primary care physician that she who had been an excellent athlete, was stumbling, and her balance was bad, and she couldn't walk down a straight hallway without veering and bumping into the wall on either side, and she could not walk up or down stairs without holding onto the handrail because she kept stumbling and falling. He examined her and said, yes, you really are markedly ataxic. You are not drunk. Uh, this wasn't there five days ago. I don't know what this is. Go to the neurology service at DHMC. Um, they actually were so impressed with her that they admitted her. Her occupational history was she was a senior faculty member at a New Hampshire college, and she had a few other complaints that were really weird. Unintentional weight loss of 15 pounds over the last few months, slurred speech. I met her a couple of days after this, and her speech sounded like this. You could understand her, but it really sounded uh, slurred. Brief flashes of light when she... Just randomly looking around the room, she would see these flashes of light. She had ringing in her ears constantly. 
and her handwriting that had been absolutely gorgeous classical script was now barely legible. So she really had signs of cerebellar problems in almost everything you can measure, along with visual and hearing problems. And this rapidly worsened over the next couple of days. But after neurology admitted her and did all of this work, they looked, they drew everything they could think of in the blood, and they did a head CT and a head MRI and an LP. Normal, 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 normal. And yet I'm presenting this in a talk about heavy metal toxicity, and um, here are some of the leading contenders. And just take a moment and think about what you think this might be. Of course, they didn't know it was heavy metals. We know now because I'm presenting it in this talk. They were thinking of autoimmune cerebellitis, some rapidly progressive viral meningoencephalitis. They didn't know. Does anyone have a strong vote for what might be going on here? Yes. I'm sorry? Yeah, arsenic can, de arsenic can definitely be neurotoxic. It wasn't true in her, and it's not usually this rapidly progressive, but it's a very good guess. Yeah. If I remember correctly, it was organic mercury. Yeah, so I did present this patient many years ago, but I was thinking that there would be a pretty good turnover of the students and the <laughs> younger faculty and the residents, but that's an excellent memory. This actually was a Dartmouth College professor and it did turn out to be organic mercury. So you have a great memory. Um, she was a chemistry professor at Dartmouth, and ironically, her level of, her area of scientific interest was the environmental toxicology and chemistry of heavy metals. And in fact, she was exposed to this nasty bugger, <coughs> dimethylmercury, in a spill in her lab five months earlier. And it said, this is dangerous. Open this vial in a fume hood. And she did. And it said, wear protective gloves. And she put on our medical protective gloves. And while she was pipetting tiny amounts of this, three or four drops fell on her hand out of the pipette. And she wasn't worried. It was in a fume hood. And she was wearing gloves. And she capped the vial, capped her pipette tube or capillary tube, wiped off the glove, threw them out in a safe place, and figured, Five months later, that can't be hurting me, but she did mention it when I spoke to her. And it was a form of mercury I had never heard of, and neither had the textbook of toxicology. They had heard of monomethylmercury with an outbreak of an epidemic of organic mercury toxicity in 1971 in Iraq during a drought, and in 1950s in Minamata Bay in Japan due to the main source of protein being fish that were contaminated with mercury that was turned into organic mercury by the fish and the microorganisms in that bay. Her clinical course was rapidly downhill um, when I found that it sort of sounded like methylmercury poisoning. None of us had ever heard of dimethylmercury. Um, we sent those levels off and, and uh, four days later the Mayo lab said, wow, this is the highest mercury level we have ever seen. We don't even know what it is yet. We have to do more serial dilutions, but it is really high. And two days later, they said that her level of mercury, and remember, when they measure mercury, all they're measuring is mercury. They can't tell us what form it was in. 
was 4,000, normal is less than 10. 400 times the upper limits of normal. And not only was it 400 times, but we guessed correctly that it was organic mercury because if you look at the blood concentration of 4,000 and the urine concentration of 200, the ratio of the blood to the urine concentration is 20 to 1. This suggests it's a very lipid-soluble compound rather than a water-soluble compound. And later we speciated this and found it was organic mercury. We didn't know it at that time. Five months later, she got sick from spilling a couple of drops. Over the next six days, she rapidly went downhill. Uh, she lost her ability to speak. Her vision dramatically declined. Her hearing, she could barely hear. And her cognitive function deteriorated. But I, I just want to say, her name was Karen Wetterhahn, and the reason I want to say that name is before she lapsed into a chronic coma and vegetative state, she asked me to present this case so other scientists and people doing research would learn to be even more careful when they work in the lab. Um, Oral chelation was begun because we were desperate, even though in Iraq in 1971, all of the chelators they tried did not work. So we tried a different one that wasn't available then. And it really worked well. Uh, her concentration of mercury in her urine went from around 200 micrograms per liter, or actually this is per 24 hours, excreting 250 micrograms per day to 40,000 micrograms per day, or 40 milligrams. That is an effective chelator. But she got worse and died. Chelation worked, didn't help the patient. It helped the numbers in the urine. So what is a chelator and, and which one should we use? And, and I really wanted um, to talk about this. A chelator is a small synthetic compound. This is the prototypical one that has two functions. It usually has two sulfhydryl groups that will sniff out and find lead or mercury and covalently bind to the lead or mercury. And it's much better to have two than one. And then the other half of the molecule is charged at physiologic pH, usually by having a COOH group that is ionized at pH 7.4, which helps attract it uh, to urine and, and make sure that it is excretable rather than reabsorbable. These were the three that were tried in 1971 in the Iraq epidemic, and they did nothing. So we chose this one, which was FDA-approved, I think in 1991, and it's called SA or dimercaptosuccinic acid, also called succimer. It is FDA-approved for significant lead intoxication, but you can use it um, as a non-approved uh, indication. It's perfectly legal. It also works very, very well for mercury. And so in desperation, we used that, and it worked tremendously well as a chelator, but not as an agent of cure. <clears throat> she was aggressively supported February through June in 97, got multiple cycles of chelation. Her Mercury levels over those months fell from 4,000 in the blood down to less than 400. That's a tenfold decrease. But she never recovered from her coma. 
She was left in a chronic vegetative state. Um, and the family, I, I have to congratulate the nurses. She never had a decubitus or a UTI. And her weight was stable with artificial nutrition. But she didn't improve. And she had said if she thought it, she was talking about a car accident, if I ever lapse into a coma from an accident, well, it was an accident, and it looks like my chances of recovery are nil, I would not want to be kept artificially alive. And so they followed through on her written will, and we withdrew life support, and unfortunately she died. Her lab notebooks going back to August the previous year show she was so fastidious. She put in on that day, I was pipetting this sample of dimethylmercury, and I spilled a little bit. And we wondered whether there were other exposures or just on this one day. She only reported on one day. And, and forensically, they looked in her lab, in her office, in her home. And all of her postdocs and her grad students and her undergrads, no one else had toxic levels of mercury except her. And the only thing that was contaminated was the phone in her office. And we believe that was contaminated because it was a phenolic resin. And every time she sweated and held the phone or breathed into the handpiece, it was only the handpiece, mercury vapor was coming out and embedding in the plastic. I examined all of her colleagues and workers, drew blood on all of them. None of them had been exposed. So I want to talk about hair analysis, which is not usually good. But in this case, it was very helpful. We plucked her hair, which grows about 1.3 centimeters per month, the hair that's farthest away from you. Not that this would apply to me, but uh, <laughs> if you're a woman and you have hair that's 30 centimeters long, that's giving you a timeline that goes back about 25 months. And I cut her hair, with her permission before she went into coma, into one millimeter lengths, and then I could have her hair and see what was happening. And you can see, before the lab spill, Everybody has a little mercury in their hair because they get it from a little mercury in their blood. That's normal. Then there was a period of about 20 days where blood levels were rapidly rising and hair levels were rapidly rising. And then there was a mono-exponential decay. And what we could tell from this forensic analysis is there was only one exposure to mercury on exactly the date that she wrote in her lab notebook based on an average length of growth of hair. The other point I want to make is hair is really useful for that, but it's a horrible screening test. Because hair, sometimes patients come in with this piece of paper, I don't know how many of you have gotten this, showing 24 metals evaluated in their hair, and seven of them are really high. And you say, what to do? Is it from the Prell shampoo? Or it's almost always an artifact. In this case, we knew she was poisoned, and we were doing this to see the timeline. Okay, so that's what I wanted to say about those tests. Also beware of patients who come in and said, I was given a chelator and then this naturopathic physician or other collected my urine and it was high in four heavy metals. The reason it was high is they took a chelator six hours earlier. And there is no standardized normal range for what the urine concentration should be. Um, just to wrap up this case, uh, we got advice from Dr. Clarkson, who was the national expert on mercury, and the medical examiner took the case. When, when um, fluids and nutrition were stopped, she died, as usual, of dehydration and bilateral pneumonia. 
I just wanted to focus on Dr. Clarkson at, at Rochester. Her mercury content in her brain was 3,100 parts per billion. Normal is two. And if you think the brain was unhappy, and it was, because all areas of the brain showed severe loss of neurons, atrophy, especially the cerebellum, the liver and the renal cortex had levels double or triple that. So this mercury, organic mercury, once it gets into cells and organically binds to sulfur-containing amino acids, you can't get it out. The chelator only works on what's in the blood. Also, another good thing to remember is latex gloves that we all wear to protect us from urine, saliva, and blood. Okay, but it's worthless for an organic molecule like dimethylmercury. It gets through that in less than a second. So it was like not wearing gloves at all. But she didn't know that because all it said was wear protective gloves, so that's what she did. <clears throat> I thought that would be the only case in the world, but a year later in the archives of toxicology, they reported on three chemistry workers in England who developed exactly the same syndrome when they were trying to synthesize dimethylmercury. And they were admitted to the hospital about two months after they cooked it up in their lab. And does this sound familiar? Dysarthria, ataxia, cerebellar signs, cortical blindness, hearing loss, a chronic vegetative state, and no one recovered. Some lasted for two years with a whole blood mercury level of around 4,000 like our patients. No benefit in their hands as well from chelation. We actually wrote this paper up, uh, or this patient up, with her permission, um, this was in the New England Journal, delayed cerebellar disease and death resulting from accidental exposure to dimethylmercury. And then Bill Hickey um, was very helpful in writing about the neuropathology, which had not been well described before uh, from this compound. And I thought I was done again. And then last summer, I got this email from Dr. Gaurav Gupta from India Hello, respected sir, I'm a doctor from India. We have a group of four doctors and we do research on biology field. Recently, we would like to conduct research on snail brain neurons. And for that research, we need dimethylmercury. My question to you is, please tell me if at the time of research experiment procedure, if I spill two drops on my hand with nitrile gloves, is it sure thing that um, I will die? I am very strong and healthy with six foot three inches tall. Doctor, is it sure if I spill two drops on my glove hand that I die, please reply me soon with your accurate answer. <laughs> what do you think I wrote him? Yes. I said, don't even think about it. And if you have that in your lab, get it rid of it safely. And then he kept writing me, are you really sure? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I thought we were done. Okay, those are our first three cases. And I only need about five minutes for the last case. So I think I'm gonna jump in. <clears throat> This one, I think, is the most likely one that you might see, and I will admit up front, I'm not really sure what's going on with it, but I'll present it to you. Because I just saw this woman a few months ago. 49-year-old woman sought a second opinion concerning her past radiologic diagnostic procedures. She said, I've had at least 10 of them. Her complaints included vertigo, decline in balance, tinnitus, sense of burning pain in her skin, and severe headaches. And she was quite certain that she had been poisoned by a heavy metal. And her naturopathic physician wanted to chelate her for this, but he wouldn't do it unless a doctor blessed that, so she was coming to me. 
for me to bless undergoing intravenous chelation. She had some other problems. She, she Even before what she thought was her toxic exposure, she had had poor balance. She had suffered several concussions from falls. She had one episode of documented viral meningitis, and her naturopathic physician had given her one treatment with intravenous glutathione, which is a sulfur-containing compound, which many people think serves as a mild chelator. She had visited a number of online websites and noted that many other people had similar complaints. What heavy metal was she worried about? Think about that for a minute, and I want to see if anyone has a strongly held theory on this. Anybody? Okay, so do you want to make a case for something? I heard you. Yeah, gadolinium. Yeah, what about it? Um, well, it's used in MRI, and that yeah. fits in, but that's about the extent of my connection. Is that, okay. And I guess but I do her know. symptoms match? Okay, so good Good for those of you, and I heard about six or seven of you mumbling, which I think was gadolinium. It wasn't a very brave gadolinium, but it was gadolinium. And, and I wasn't familiar with this either, but the online community is very familiar with it. And I reviewed her chart. I, I just saw her um, a few weeks ago, and I could find at least 11 different MRI studies, each of which seemed to have an indication cervical disc disease, lumbar disc disease, um, viral meningoencephalitis, a couple of bad head traumas. I wasn't faulting the, the ordering of the tests, but at least 10 of them gave contrast. I'll talk about that in a moment. Sometimes at very high doses of contrast. So she was really quite worried about this. Um, I reviewed all of her labs, and you know, the usual comprehensive metabolic panel was all fine. Um, her latest MRI was done with one of the popular agents, and I'll, I'll talk more about this, Dotorem, high dose in October of 17. And on her own initiative, she sent her own urine samples to the lab one month later, and there was a lot of gadolinium in her urine. 66 micrograms per 24 hours. All of us in this room, if we haven't had an MRI done in the last couple of years, we'd be less than one. And she was really worried about that. That's a lot of gadolinium. And two months later, it was still 24 times the upper limit of normal. Although her serum gadolinium in December was at the lower end of the normal range, and you might ask, was this a reputable lab? And I would say it's one of the best. She sent her urine samples and her blood samples to Mayo Labs, which is the same lab we use. I found a paper online, none of these are published in medical journals, but I've given you the web address, showing for all of these people that had one or more MRIs with gadolinium contrast, three months after, all of them had levels of one or greater, one uh, microgram per 24 hours or greater, normal is less than about 0.6. So you end up holding on to some of the gadolinium and the contrast for a long time and then slowly peeing it out. This is the same paper. Again, if you want to find the source, I don't usually quote from the web, but that's where most of this stuff is published. Um, what it seemed to me was with uh, a lot coming out in the urine, but the blood level being low normal, 
This is implying that there is a deep compartment somewhere in the patient that is holding on to gadolinium in a plus two state where it mimics calcium, probably in the bone, and slowly releasing it. And then as soon as it gets into the blood, you pee it out. But that happens over a very prolonged period of time. Um, Chuck Norris's wife, Chuck Norris wrote about online, and he says, Gina is a survivor of gadolinium poisoning. And because of it, she's been very sick and she makes a lot of new friends. And this group, this community that is forming online, believes their most common symptoms that they share with no percentage that has it and also no normal range. Well, how many of us normally would say we have a little bit of pain or a little bit of skin tightening? I think about a third of us would say, yeah, I sort of noticed that a little bit. Pain, skin changes, muscle issues, ocular problems. So these aren't very specific, but they seem to be the symptoms that the online community is talking about. And here is a more scientific uh, paper from uh, the American Journal of the American College of Radiology saying that there are currently nine gadolinium-based contrast agents. But gadolinium is toxic, and so they are given already chelated to a linear compound or a macrocyclic. And the reason that's important is the linear chelators tend to release gadolinium once you inject it into the patient, which gives you free gadolinium, which gets into your bones, which hangs around. Whereas the macrocyclic ones, and I'll show you those three in a moment, tend not to release the gadolinium, so they're considered safer. Here are the three macrocyclics that are considered the most safe. Um, the brand names are Gadivist, Dotorem, and Prohance, and here are the unpronounceable um, generic names. And so the, the uh, radiology community is thinking, if you can use these, they are the safer ones because they are less likely to dissociate in vivo. And it's the dissociation in vivo that leads to two things that we know can happen. One is nephrogenic systemic fibrosis, which was initially identified in patients with very low GFRs or end-stage renal failure or on dialysis. So we try really hard not to give gadolinium to them. And then a, a more recent thing, and we don't know what it means, is a small subset of patients who get gadolinium have their dentate nucleus light up for months or years, but that hasn't been correlated with um, symptoms or signs, but it is abnormal. So here the American College of Radiology suggests that gadolinium-based contrast should be used only when you really need it. Don't do it routinely. Try to use one of the macrocyclic agents that I've shown you above because it will dissociate less and never exceed the recommended doses, which are in either milliliters per kilogram or milligrams per kilogram. And again, the take-home points would be, I didn't know what to do with this woman. If she was poisoned, it wasn't her fault. The doctors had recommended these 11 MRIs, 10 with contrast. And I can't even define what the toxidrome is because there, I could find no medical writing about how many of those symptoms occur more frequently than the general population. And I could find zero articles showing the balance of efficacy and safety of chelation. And so I did not recommend chelation to her. I did recommend no more contrast MRIs for a long time. 
and I recommended follow-up in two months to make sure this was going down. Um, she was very unhappy with me, and the next five women who were scheduled to see me canceled their appointments because I had not approved chelation. But I didn't think medically I could, I could recommend that. Interestingly, I don't know how many of you got into your emails yet, but yesterday the Office of Clinical Affairs sent all of us new rules about gadolinum-based contrast agents, so I really felt my grand rounds was topical. <laughs> um, and then here's a summary of our patients. Their toxicity ranged from mild to moderate to severe, requiring two extra surgeries to severe and ultimately fatal. So my learning objectives today were to help you just be sensitized that these things are happening and if a patient comes in and smells suspicious for an accidental exposure, think about the possibility that that could be happening. Um, I have to say I showed a slide of Lionel when he was in high school and he was in a heavy metal band and I actually played an instrument that didn't really allow me to be in a band uh, a heavy metal rock band, but I was attracted to uh, bands that included a lot of heavy metals, just like Woody Allen was, and so this could have been me in 1967. <laughs> so let me stop there and turn on the lights and see if there are any questions or comments. Yeah, go ahead, Jack. David, yeah, many of us are probably thinking of four or five patients that we've seen that have made the rounds with vague complaints or various myriad of complaints. And I'm wondering, should we change our threshold for ordering some sort of panel? And if so, what is the panel that yeah. should be ordered? Very good question. Um, a heavy metal screen panel has lead, mercury, arsenic, and cadmium. And I don't know why cadmium is in there. We never see that. If you suspect gadolinium, you have to order a specific gadolinium blood test and a specific gadolinium urine test. We do both of those through Mayo. Yeah. I saw a hand. Yes. Um, if Dr. Wedderhorn had been chelated very early, presumptively, yeah. would that have helped? I don't know. That experiment hasn't been done. But what I can tell you was, I don't know if I would have said this then. But if the same thing happened today and somebody came to me today and said, I had a lab accident with dimethylmercury six hours ago, I would right then start chelation with DMSA. Because I know DMSA drags it out terrifically well. Maybe if we had started DMSA the day of the accident, maybe we could have presented that. But that's never been tested. Yes? Did the glove practice change? Yes. Uh, Michael Blaney researched 12 different types of glove and found only one type that was impervious to dimethylmercury. But he now, he put on back then, in 1998, big signs in all of the Dartmouth College labs about all of the different gloves, latex, nitrile, and others, and what they're good for and what they're not good for. Yeah? Dave, you mentioned that healing, uh, you had concerns about the, that renal function. Uh, do you ever combine chelation with dialysis in a situation? Um, that's been discussed, especially in patients where you want to give chelation and they have no urine and, and they have end-stage renal disease. Or in the patient that I saw with um, uh, mercury 
chloride, mercuric chloride, the mercury put them on dialysis for two months. And we chelated them, and we were hoping the chelation would come out in the dialysis, and we measured it, and some of it did. So yes, sometimes we do that. Maybe one last question, and then I'll take the rest offline up front. Yes, Kathy. I was going to ask about costs of the first two patients. So the medical care costs of the person, woman who had that both hips replaced yeah. and the cost of those workers, did they get their medical care costs covered by yeah. the companies that have yeah. that? Yeah. So the... the the first patient, the one who had both hips replaced, I, I have her permission to say that. That's my wife. And um, her medical costs were totally compensated in a class action lawsuit where the company eventually agreed that their product was to blame. My only regret with that class action lawsuit is the president and the vice president of the company knew about it for years, hid the data, and continued to sell a defective product. I would have liked to have seen them charged clinically for negligence and bodily harm, and in some cases, death. That didn't happen, but their medical expenses were paid. And what was the second one? They're just the, the workers who were exposed. Uh, the workers are still having a fight with their employer, and they have been left paying everything out of pocket thus far. So thank you. You, were, you asked great questions. It's good to see you. And if you have any other follow-up, I can take them up front.